So welcome to this Institute for Government Fringe event, uh, examining Labour's plans for an Integrity and Ethics Commission. I'm Hannah White, I'm Director of the Institute for Government. Uh, I'm delighted that we're able to work on this event with Spotlight on Corruption, Transparency International and the UK Anti-Corruption Coalition. So I don't think uh, there's much need to set out the context here in terms of uh, the ethics problems that we've seen in recent years, but I'll do it anyway. Um, from West Ferry to Greensill, from Owen Patterson uh, and Partygate, to the resignations of Nadine Zahari and Dominic Raab, ethical standards in government have been a high-profile topic in recent years. And Labour, in this context, is committed to setting up uh, an Integrity and Ethics Commission, should they get into government, to overhaul and upgrade standards in public life. So what we want to do today is take the opportunity to discuss what that might look like um, and how and whether it would solve the problems that we've seen in recent years. So I'm really delighted we've got an excellent panel here today. Oh, and even our final panellist arriving hot first <laughs> as I begin to introduce the panel. Um, Kevin Daniel, we have <laughs> Daniel Griffith, uh, who of course is uh, has been MP for Hlechny since 2005 and is Shadow Minister in the Cabinet Office. Thank you. Um, apologies for having to dash from a previous RFU. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Professional IFG panellist today. Um, yes, so Nir is uh, Shadow Minister in the Cabinet Office. We have uh, at the end of our panel uh, Debbie Abrams, who is MP for Olden East and Southernworth uh, since 2011, uh, and she's currently proposer of the Elected Representatives Bill, which I'm sure she'll have a chance to tell us about uh, later. Um, we have uh, Duncan Haynes, yeah, uh, sorry, my people are in the wrong order on my, on my brief, uh, Director of Policy and Programmes at Transparency International UK, Susan Hawley. Uh, who is um, Executive Director of Spotlight on Corruption, Aubrey Alibetti at the end, uh, who for the next couple of weeks uh, is Senior Political Correspondent at The Guardian, uh, and last but not least, my colleague Tim Durrant, who is Programme Director at the Institute for Government and leads all our work with ministers. So as I said, at the start we've got plenty to uh, discuss here today, and uh, Slightly unfairly, I'm going to come straight to you. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Um, with an open question, just to set out for us how you feel um, Labour's approach to ethics in government will differ uh, to the current government's should Labour uh, come into power after the next general election. Okay. Uh, can everybody hear all right? Yeah, good. Okay, well, look, um, as far as we're concerned, the Labour Party. This is an absolute priority for us, an absolute must that we clean up politics. I could spend a whole hour telling you about the sleaze and the disasters and so forth, but that's obviously not the purpose of today's meeting. Um, but we've got to get things right. We are all being bracketed in the same category. You know, politicians, they've all got their snaps in the trough, all the rest of it. And we've got to demonstrate very clearly that we command the trust of the British people. Now, there will always be cynics, but the vast majority of decent people, if they can see things going in the right direction, they may give us a second hearing, give us a chance to do some of the things that we want to do. Um, it's not been an easy time for us in the Labour Party. We've got strong leadership with Keir, and he will take that forward for us uh, with the 
ethics and integrity commission that we would want to set up if we are lucky enough to be elected in government. And it's not just about Keir, it's about the whole of the shadow cabinet, the whole of the front bench team. It's an absolute must that we put as a top priority cleaning up the political act. So we want a genuinely independent ethics and integrity commission. We want to put it on a statutory footing so that it's much more robust than the current systems. I mean, it is quite absurd, and you can read this in Chris Bryant's book put across in a more amusing fashion, even if it is a very, very serious subject, that the ministers, in fact, are subject to less rigorous rules than MPs. And since 2015, they've even been counting some of the gifts and expenses that they've had as part of their ministerial duties and therefore not declarable. So, you know, there are so many things that need to be put right. So we want things to be much more robust and we want it to include, in our commission, we want to include the work that's currently done by the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments. This is the committee which looks at what you might call the revolving door, when ministers leave office, um, what appointments can they take up within what time frame, etc., etc. And the government's response uh, to a number of recommendations from uh, the Committee on Standards in Public Life has been not only incredibly slow coming, but incredibly weak in terms of wanting to clean things up. Now, we want to have a much more robust procedure and we want to have sanctions for ex-ministers who don't comply with the regulations. We also want to incorporate the work of the independent advisor on ministerial interests into our ethics and integrity commission. At the moment, it is a completely absurd situation that that advisor, sometimes called the ethics advisor, works completely at the bidding of the prime minister, cannot start an investigation without the prime minister, cannot publish what they find without the prime minister's say-so. Now, clearly, we want to make sure that that is within the commission and that we have proper uh, sanctions. It can investigate, um, obviously, of its own volition, um, and that we can uh, uh, you know, impose, impose um, sanctions, obviously reporting transparently and so forth. Um, so those are you know, two of the, the, the uh, committees that uh, functions that will be brought under the Ethics and Integrity Commission. We also want it to coordinate and work with some of the existing bodies. So, for example, the Committee on Standards in Public Life. So they're not reinventing the wheel. Um, they will have a crucial role in forming the work and the recommendations of our Ethics and Integrity Commission. And we want to have a proper robust appointments process and we want to have this commission reporting to Parliament. But the most important thing of all is its independence. And that is absolutely key to any of this being taken seriously or working. Because for too long, there's been the impression given that it's MPs mark their own homework, the Prime Minister marks his own homework. You know, there's been no decent scrutiny. Um, and I'm sure that you will have welcomed today the announcement by Rachel Reeves uh, looking into fraud. 
um, we estimate that somewhere between 4 billion, this is House of Commons figures, 4 billion and 10 billion of money went missing, either through fraud or error, through all the different COVID programs. So even if you make an average of that, you're talking about 7 billion, we are looking to have a commissioner to investigate that and where there are opportunities to claw back. And we are hoping to claw back in the region of two billion pounds. So to, to, you know, to put that in context, that needs to go side by side with the work we want to do on ministerial responsibility and ministerial code, answerability to our ethics and integrity commission. And we want to make sure that any form of fraud, the sentencing is strengthened to just ram it home how serious it is to take money from the public purse through fraudulent activity of any sort. And our procurement rules will also be debarring companies and people who want to tender who have fraudulent records. So you, it's got to be part of a whole package and there's got to be genuine independence. Thanks very much, Neil. I should say there are some seats at the front of the room if standing at the back would like to come and sit down. Um, thank you so much for setting that out. Um, Susan, could you want to just run us through, um, in that context, the, the major challenges you see, you would see, for a new government um, coming in at the next general election in respect of ethics and standards? Uh, yes, thanks very much. Uh, uh, great to hear uh, these announcements, Nia. Uh, some of them we've heard before, and the new one today by Rachel Rose, which is very welcome. I was absolutely right that, to borrow an unfortunate phrase from this trust, Labour do need to go big or go home on ethics. Um, the trust that the, in politics is really the rock bottom. And unfortunately, all the polls show uh, that even at the height of the PPE scandals, the bigger majority of people thought that government, this government, was no more corrupt than previous governments. Mm -hmm. So they priced in to politicians that, as you say, mm -hmm. they're really in it for themselves. Um, so there's there's an uphill um, road to climb, uh, as I'm sure you know from <laughs> doorsteps. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think alongside the Ethics Commission, and I'll, I'll come on to why, I think it's... Um, you do need some big announcements early on, really laying out how you're going to do things differently from day one. Um, and I'm really glad to hear you say it's a priority because once Boris left power, there's always the risk that this isn't so politically salient, but it is the prism through which people see all the other issues like the cost of living crisis, the NHS crisis, and climate change. Um, and uh, we know that 70% of people, and this is from Constitution Unit polling, our own polling and focus groups, want independent regulation of politicians. So we're absolutely on the right track, that independence is absolutely critical. Um, we would love to see Labour using the next six to 12 months of really getting ahead and consulting people about how this is going to work, because it isn't an easy proposal how it fits with other standards regulators, um, how it fits constitutionally, uh, they're all issues that need careful thought and careful consultation. And so 
that process of consultation, the earlier it happens so that Labour can turn up with, if they win, uh, with a blueprint uh, on the doing something on the tender better. Um, I think there are other things the government can do that don't require legislation from day one, uh, which would really show that they mean business on doing things differently. And I think, I mean, we have to be realistic about getting legislation through. So the first thing that Prime Minister could do is say, any interim independent advisor will be fully independent, can investigate what they like, uh, and will be appointed through an independent process, because you're going to need an interim advisor, because it's going to take a few months to get legislation through. Uh, the second thing is lobbying transparency, which isn't really the remit of the Ethics Commission, uh, but is absolutely critical, and there are some good allies in the room from the lobbying um, professional body that might want to add to this in discussions. I think the new government has to show early on it will not be captured by vested interests, because that's what people fear. Um, and that means really committing to full transparency, not the half measures the government's done, who's meeting special advisors, who the in-house lobbyists uh, are meeting with. Um, but we also need them to commit to having kind of equal access policy and making sure that every government department must report annually on how it is ensuring that ordinary people get a say in policies, uh, because that is about making sure that vested interests don't capture policy. And then uh, finally, and then I'll finish, uh, is conflicts of interest. Um, and I think it's really important that uh, this gets tackled early on and that Labour shows that there aren't conflicts of interest at the heart of decision making. And they could do that by creating central register in government uh, of conflicts of interest that can be used by procurement bodies, uh, in public appointments. Um, and it should make sure, this is one for you, Henry, that includes shareholdings, as uh, the Council for Europe advised us uh, quite a long time ago to do, uh, and really clear up the mess. There's such a patchwork of different rules and conflicts of interest between Parliament and um, government, so that really needs to be tackled. And then if, if uh, Liberal would be really ambitious, then on day one we could also commit, it does require legislation, but to making... Uh, corruption in public office, a new criminal offence, along with trading and influence, which is something the Royal Commission have said, uh, but has dropped out of the headlines a bit. Thanks very much, Susan. So, Susan's saying there it would be a good idea for, uh, for Labour to consult on these proposals, but Duncan, you've got a chance right now to tell us what you think this new body should look like. Well, I, I think in a word, what it means is leadership. Uh, I don't just mean the character of the leader, or indeed the character of the leader of the government, but actually something that we've all got a responsibility for and which we should ensure that this commission is able to embody. Leadership is one of the Nolan principles of public life. Uh, and I think that's because what would be incredibly disappointing at the end of this initiative would be if we simply had you know, a collection of watchdogs who simply worked according to a mandate which was to investigate after the event individual cases of alleged wrongdoing. Um, what we need is people who have uh, a mandate and the sponsorship from the very top of the government to drive a renewal in our political culture. And, and I think that they'll find a lot of support for that. I was heartened to see uh, yesterday that in the uh, delegates' priorities ballot for this conference, coming out at the top of uh, their, their list of priorities to be debated tomorrow were motions on ethics and integrity. Delegates at this conference from Houghton to Barking and probably a lot of places in between 
people who probably go out on the doorsteps or, or make those phone calls and hear what the voters really think. And I, I get the impression there is more appetite for taking this subject on from people who are personally invested in politics, but who are perhaps outside of the Westminster bubble than, than those on the inside. And, and I think any, any politicians uh, taking this on will find a certain amount of wind in their sails from, from the grassroots of the movement like this one. Um, and then um, the other thing that I really think we need to see is some freedom to, 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 to think aloud. Uh, we, we see often with our watchdogs at the moment that they are very much constrained by a particular, particular technical brief, that this is my issue, and I can write letters about whether someone has complied with the code on this. Actually, uh, we need people to be having this conversation. I mean, I wonder if there are any prospective Labour MPs in this room, what training they have had on integrity and ethics from the Labour Party as part of their preparation to be MPs, or what training will be offered when we do become MPs. How do we get to a situation where actually your colleagues in the tea room are having a quiet word with you because something really isn't on and you know, that's, that's letting everyone down as well as the public. Uh, so we're not just relying on people whose job it is to be watchdogs, but actually we're all showing some leadership in playing our part in changing the political culture. Thanks very much, Duncan. Debbie, can I come to you now? You, as I said at the start, you're sponsoring uh, a bill uh, in this space. But more broadly, can I also ask you to, to tell us a bit about, you know, where you think the culture is at in the House of Commons and where you think it needs to get to. So I introduced um, a bill uh, the second day back uh, after the Christmas uh, New Year um, bill. So it's um, the Elected Representative Codes of Conduct uh, bill. And it was because in many of us, and it's not just, you know, on my side of the house, there are people across the house who've been absolutely appalled um, in terms of the behaviour of um, certain MPs. And as Mia said, um, you know, you're, you're all uh, tarred with the same brush um, around that. And some of us got into politics for the right reason, to try and make a difference uh, for our constituents, but for the country as a whole. And, and obviously that is severely uh, impacted by, as I say, the behaviour of, of a few so I, I, can I just comment briefly, because I believe uh, and I agree with um, what Duncan is saying um, about um, we need to have training. But I go even further, so in the selection of uh, candidates, you know, and again, my bill includes this. I'll go through the four bits of it, if I may, in a, in a second. Um, but, you know, we also need to recognise that local level as well, our councillors. And it, it, it get, the uh, Committee on Standards and Public Life did an audit of that. Um, the, the councillor contracts, which are an absolute mess. And if per, people's first experience of elected um, politicians is through their councillors, you know, you, we really need to make sure at all levels in the system that it's, it's, uh, um, it, it's appropriate. So I also chair the, uh, and this comes up to your, your point in terms of the culture, the uh, APBG uh, co-chair with Saida Varsi uh, on uh, compassion, uh, compassionate politics, supported by the Compassion in Politics uh, group. Um, uh, and they have done polling, and so if I could mention this, uh, 7 in 10 uh, people uh, don't uh, trust politicians. Seven in ten don't trust their elected representatives. Nine in ten think that politicians don't have their interests at heart. 
to and through feel powerless about the decisions that are made in, in Westminster on their behalf. So the, the, the aim of this group is really to try and look at the culture and politics and how we can shift it, not just in terms of bad behaviour, but how can we recognise that our, our democracy is not in a healthy place. If those are the sort of um, views of, of people... Yes, we've had all the scandals and so on. But if people feel so passive in terms of it, it, decisions made in Westminster do not uh, impact on us, we are powerless to change it, then I think there's something wrong. I, I got into politics. I was a public health consultant focused on inequalities. And our focus on inequalities tends to be around income and wealth. We don't and haven't looked as much as we should at inequalities in power. And that is also very, very significant in how it also affects your health and well-being. And within the inequalities in power, there's the inequalities in political power. You know, people best in us every five years or so, uh, a level of trust, and when those, depending on who your politicians are, very little contact, could be absolutely no contact at all, and no real engagement. This is, I think, at our peril, this is a big, big mistake. It's not good for the country. It's not good in terms of the quality of decisions that are made. Um, and it certainly isn't good for, 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 for people, for, our, for the people that we um, say that we want to represent. So we, I really do think that we need to change that. I was an observer for the... Um, uh, the climate assembly that was uh, held uh, back in 2020, which a number of select committees invested in, bringing together people from all over the country, all backgrounds, you know, some professionals, some with very, very uh, little education, bringing together, and they developed a consensus with the uh, support facilitated by experts in the different, a consensus of what they would like to see uh, around climate change for the country. So if, and this is, these are citizens' assembly sort of approaches. So I, I really do think that's, and that was one of my bits that I introduced, said about my ethics commission, um, because that was one of the things. I have an ethics commission that looked about changing that, that sort of dynamic so that we could have an ongoing dialogue with our constituents um, through um, citizens' assemblies type groups or deliberative democracy type the other thing, as I mentioned, was around the uh, councillors' uh, codes of conduct um, and making sure that uh, in the same way that uh, Mia has been talking uh, about that being put on the statutory footing, that should also be tightened up and put on the statutory uh, footing. Um, and then something that hasn't been mentioned and probably might shock you, everybody's aware of the Nolan principles, the seven Nolan Would you believe that they're, they're not included in terms of the, the purview of the Parliamentary Standards Commission, Commissioner. They, they don't come... You, it is, it's excluded from what they can investigate. So serial and serious liars, not investigated. That's not part of what they're responsible to do. And I, I think that's a nonsense. I, I really do. So I think that that should be included as part of, again, an independent parliamentary standards commissioner. So it's not just in ministers, it's all MPs that will fall under, under that. The codes of conduct um, would include, as I say, the Nolan principles and serial, serious breaches would be investigated by that independent commissioner as, as well. So 
Neil um, um, may not not uh, not know about the bill and so on, but I, I do I do think it's worth us looking at how we can all MPs can be held to account in that in that way as well. Thank you very much indeed. Audrey, can I come to you? Obviously, when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, um, ethics and standards was a very high-profile topic for Labour, and it's continued to be something that the party has spoken about. Where is it likely to sit, do you think, as we run into the next general election? How can Labour, or anybody who wishes to, make sure that it is um, on the agenda? And do you think it's a vote winner? I think there is a real fear in Westminster about too much kind of introspection um, with broken systems there. We see that with things like bullying and um, harassment, so the sort of um, sort of suggestions about changing and reforming the way that ICGS or the standard system works, and I think you see that in a similar vein here. And we only really end up talking about it when there's a crisis, when there's an issue, and that was pertinent for so long, and now it's sort of slightly faded away into the background, but there is a really important proposal here which it's important to communicate to voters why that remains so high on the agenda. Um, I think you obviously want to remind voters of the sorts of issues, the kind of, the way that the systems of government were so gummed up, the kind of patchwork approach as well. I mean, you might not remember, but the um, Raab report was authored by Adam Tolley. I mean, there wasn't even a, a sort of ministerial um, advisor in place at the time. So there's a very patchwork approach to these things. So for the public to be able to understand that there is a sort of single point of contact through which to understand who is investigating these issues, how and why, that transparency, I think, will really lend itself to, to the sort of public support and backing of these systems. The other thing that I want to kind of highlight but I'd be interested to hear how Labour's proposals include this is the ethics advisor does not just look at issues of behaviour, but they also govern the list, and it is a list, it's not a register, of ministerial interests. Mm -hmm. And that sort of dictates what we know about what ministers' interests are, what stakes they have in various companies, what stakes their family might have in various companies as well. That is all currently dealt with in-house, behind closed doors, by the Cabinet Office and the Ministerial Independent Advisor. So... I think I'd be quite interested to hear if you could reform that as well, it would show the public the sort of salience, the pertinence of how decisions are being made and why, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. I think that would be very much part of the solution here. Thanks, Aubrey. I'm going to come to Tim and then I think I'm going to go straight to questions from the audience because I can see lots of people who I'm sure will have excellent questions for the panel, so do be uh, getting those ready for us. Tim, you think a lot about... Um, how government works and the sort of um, implementation questions that there are around a proposal such as this. So what are the questions you think future Labour ministers, should should the party uh, win the next election, will have to answer about uh, a policy like this? So I actually, excuse me, I actually think Mia has answered quite a lot of those questions already, which is, is great to see. Clearly, you know, thinking is going on inside Labour on this stuff. But just to say quickly, I think there are three main points here. One is the question on legislation. So we always say at the IFG, don't rush into the 100 days strategy, right? It's very tempting to say, we'll do this in our first 100 days and we'll do that. And actually, Liz Trust tried to do that. <laughs> so 100 days isn't necessarily the best way to run a government. But as someone has already said, there is a lot that can be done in this space without needing legislation. Yes, we think legislation is necessary for some of these big changes. It will solidify the system. It will strengthen it. But a new ministerial code issued by a new prime minister saying, my independent advisor is fully independent and he or she will have 
these powers would go a long way to, to bolstering the system. The second question that I think really matters is enforcement of whatever the new rules are. So yes, it's about independence of investigation, but it's also, okay, when someone is found to have broken the rules, how is that dealt with? So um, what are the sanctions that are available to the Prime Minister? Who decides on those sanctions? Is it the independent advisor who recommends that a minister should face such and such a sanction? Or is it still fully in the Prime Minister's gift to decide how that works? I think there are pros and cons on either way, but Labour need to have an answer to that, uh, that question. And thirdly, and most importantly, this is not an original thought, everyone has referred to this in some way, but culture and leadership is the most important thing. You can have all the systems in the world, you can have all the rule books in the world, but unless the Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister, the Secretaries of State are sort of living out the standards that they expect everyone in their government to behave by, then it doesn't matter. So, you know, if... I don't know, there's a Secretary of State, a Labour Secretary of State in a department and they are treating civil servants poorly, that will undermine everything else that's going on, right? It's about living those values as well as talking about them. And I think that has to start with the Prime Minister, it has to come from number 10, but it has to be embodied by all of the senior politicians and the special advisors and the local councillors and all of the politicians that have been mentioned already. Because without that, as I say, the kind of the systems around it doesn't really matter. Thanks very much, Tim. Okay, I think we'll go to questions now. We'll take them in groups of two or three. Um, so the gentleman here on, on the... Uh, uh, <laughs> please, can you let us know um, your name and where you're from? Uh, and I will make an effort to repeat the question in case people in the room can't hear. Thank you, um, Chair. And thanks to all our speakers. I really enjoyed your input. My name is Andrew Buchan, and I am a barrister and I am from Hornsey and Wood Green. Uh, I'm not a delegate, but I'm here to observe. Um, I was fascinated by Rachel's announcement today, and I think it's, um, in a sense, long overdue, but not from Labour. Um, my point is, and I, I appreciate that, that we're talking about future standards and possibly learning from previous breaches, but we do have uh, a, a talk called Misfeasance in a Public Office, and it strikes me that um, this commission ought to be looking back as well as forward uh, and judging the behaviour of ministers and um, certain decisions that have been made. And I know that Dame Heather Howlett is covering the COVID decisions in her inquiry, but it strikes me that there were such scandals which leave such a a bad taste in people's mouth and perhaps is one of the reasons why we're all talking about the disrespect for politicians. Mm -hmm. um, it strikes me that um, the looking forward um, doesn't mean to say that we can't investigate what happened in the past using the same standards of misfeasance in a public office and that would include the guidance and protocols and so on and so forth. That's the point I just want to make. Thanks very much. Um, Tom, uh, Tom Brake from Unlock Democracy. Uh, when we asked the Parliamentary Commissioner to investigate Nadine Dorries, one of the reasons he gave for not being able to do so was because members of Parliament don't have a job description. Do the panel think that this might be a way forward, perhaps uh, a failure to comply with a job description that might then trigger the Recall of MPs Act? But if you don't think this is a way forward, what would you do to deal with an MP who simply decides to down tools and do nothing for five years? 
Do you want to just pass the uh, mic immediately behind you to the gentleman with glasses? Hi, uh, John Johnston from Politico. Uh, question from Nia. Um, can we get a kind of estimated time for when the commission might be set up? And uh, then more broadly, uh, are you looking at kind of different rules around donations uh, and political finance obviously plays a big part and currently there's lots and lots of loopholes uh, in the rules that allow money to flow into political parties without the public uh, or the media being able to find out who's behind it. Brilliant, thank you. So I think we mustn't expect all panelists to answer all the questions and we'll be here all day. Um, so we've got a question from Andrew about this feasance in public office, should uh, this new commission look backwards as well as forwards? Uh, a question from Tom about whether we need a job description for MPs, otherwise how can we uh, take a view on whether they're doing their job on behalf of their constituents or not. And a question from John about um, when uh, an ethics commission, when we might expect an ethics commission to be set up, should, should Labour win the election, and also uh, about um, whether Labour is thinking about questions around donations and political finance. Do you want to start with that one, Lucy? That was directly to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I think I think there's an enormous shopping list here, and there's lots and lots of things that we'd like to do. So, um, the the time frame for setting up the commission, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to get drawn on that for the time being. I've, I've only been in the job a couple of weeks, so it's something I'm also going to work with experts on. We we will um, have to make sure we do it in a timely fashion, but you know, as a priority, but. Um, and in terms of donations, yes, I think that's another a big area that we do need to, to tighten up and clean up on. Definitely there's work to be done there. Um, I might just pick up on Andrew's point while I'm holding force. Um, I think the public get the idea of clawing money back. I think that's they can see that's a really good idea. Save us all some money and they'll, they'll, they'll support that. I think the difficulty with doing a sort of retrospective looking back for a new commission that's set up is a we're talking about workload and we'd have to discuss you know is that a, is that a priority and secondly i think it might simply be seen as vindictive on our part and perhaps not what they want us to focus on um in the first uh you know couple of years of government and i'm, I'm only throwing those out as caveats i'm not saying it shouldn't be done but I'm, I'm saying I think people will get the clawing back of the money more than they will get that. Um, do you have a view, and then I'll go to Debbie straight afterwards, on, on job descriptions for, for MPs? Um, but, well, I think there are two points here. I think, first of all, it's what Duncan said, that the Commission has to have leadership and it has to be proactive and it has to have a remit which says and anything else which might lead to corruption or whatever rather than oh well actually it isn't there in black and white so we can't possibly investigate so it was a complete nonsense the answer that was given Tom wasn't it that uh, we can't possibly investigate and secondly yes I do I think we you know I think we are um, we are um, uh, responsible uh, for providing a service for the public and they should have an idea of what we do and I think it's perfectly reasonable um, to have a job description for an MP. I mean you'd never do any other job without a job description so you know it, it seems to me so normal you can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want to have it. David, you want to? Well I, I think I broadly uh, agree with uh, Mia. I mean on the on the bad the, uh, the misfeasance in, in public office I suppose if anything 
so appalling was identified um, that there may, you know, it may we may be compelled uh, to do something. We know of individual cases, um, but you know, I was thinking of of of, of one in terms of a case that um, Caroline Lucas, Lady Moran, and I took. The, um, the health secretary to, to court about in terms of his uh, um, breaking his own laws in, 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 in terms of that. Um, uh, but I suppose that, you know, that's something that um, we, we shouldn't possibly close the door to, but I, I do understand what Neil's saying uh, uh, around that. Yep, yes to the job description, I've no problem with that at all. And, uh, and also around the donations to political parties, yes. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's quite shocking, really. Sorry, could I, I just want to clarify, I mean, um, the legal issue said the misfeasance and pornography offence is not fit for purpose, which is actually why I mentioned corruption. And we've talked to real, fish, um, real enforcement officials who say a lot of the people we staff, they couldn't prosecute because we don't have a trading influence offence. But if we'd had a trading influence offence, it might be different. So I think that recognition, you know, about a second but the recognition that um, some, you know, we need to learn from it and actually make sure that you know that can never happen again and that people can be held to account, which is what people want to see. And I mean, political donations. I mean, if we can add in that first hundred days, which I know two or seven months to do. Put the electoral commission back on an independent footing and have a specialist unit um, investigate criminal uh, and police investigating election offences. Thanks, Susan. Um, Duncan, do you want to come in next? Yeah. Uh, very quickly on John's question about uh, donations and political finance. Um, Labour might win the next election, but if they don't do anything about political finance, I, I doubt they'll be able to win one after. Um, but um, more broadly and a, a more high-minded approach uh, to this question, I, I would suggest to you that people that fundraise for political campaigns shouldn't get to decide who sits in our parliament, shouldn't be able to nominate people for peerages, and that includes party leaders. Uh, and uh, as long as we have a situation where someone who, uh, access to whom is, is prized by potential party funders, also decides who sits for the rest of their life in our parliament, we're going to have a problem with corruption and public confidence in, in the way our politics is funded. Uh, and, and you don't even need legislation for that. We already have another way by which people enter the House of Lords. We could simply have uh, the new Prime Minister uh, resolve that uh, this, this is not going to be a practice that he's going to continue, that his predecessors have brought into disrepute. Thanks. Tim? Um, I just wanted to come in on the... Um, Point about job descriptions but also which i think links to a wider point i mean it's great to hear the two mps we have here saying they would like job descriptions which would be great but i think criticism of mps is always going to come back down to politics so the new doris question is interesting right she was she eventually did resign having said she would several weeks earlier because of the amount of criticism she got from her political colleagues and that both from from this party and from her own party and that i think is always how our system is going to work yes you can again you can have rules you can have things written down but until the politics shifts and kind of makes things happen little will happen so i think we've spoken about this before the ifg 
the way that Boris Johnson was removed as leader of the Conservative Party and as Prime Minister was actually the system working in the UK. Eventually, enough of his MPs said, this man is no longer fit to be Prime Minister, we're withdrawing our support from him. And that was a political decision. And in the UK, it is always, I think, going to come down to political decision-making. So, yes, have job descriptions, have more codes of conduct and so on and so forth, but it's about kind of MPs being in touch with public opinion and leadership from politicians as to what is acceptable behaviour and what isn't, and that is what actually makes things change. Aubrey? Yeah, on the job description point, I think it is an interesting one. I mean, effectively, it's in the sort of gift of the Standards Commissioner to decide whether or not they think there's been any potential breach in the first place, and they have this kind of quite nebulous um, one they can look into in terms of bringing the house into disrepute. So I sort of feel like there's enough of a kind of catch-all net underneath for somebody like Daniel Greenberg to be able to initiate an investigation if he wants already. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you think, um, having spoken to former standards commissioners, the idea, I, mean, I, t- I totally get Bobby's point about, you know, it seems really weird that the main principles sit within um, the MP's code of conduct, but you can't be investigated for breaching them. They can only be taken into account in relation to a breach of the fairly narrow set of financial rules that you might break. Um, but then I do think, you know, if I was a Sanders commissioner and I had a constituent writing to me saying, you know, my, my MP has shown insufficient leadership, how I would go about making a judgment on that is, is quite tricky. Some are, some are more difficult than, than, than others, but honesty in terms of when you... When you and we all know who they are, don't we? I mean, serial liars. I mean, you just... It's appalling. Absolutely appalling. It's appalling for us, let alone people, you know, that we're meant to represent. So, uh, and I, I get what Tim's saying in terms of the politics uh, working, but again, suppose there was a party where we didn't have the moderate... That we, uh, that we had and we and so had a closer alignment with what's happening in the, in the states i mean that's that would be scary and that, uh, wait for politics to work it, it just it so we need to think a bit longer as well as yeah. well i think and in relation to tom's part i do think you know we have call tasks to select committees um you might at least go as far as call tasks for mps against which people could start a discussion about whether mps were fulfilling their role or not even if that wasn't a sort of justiciable uh list of things okay let's take another round of questions there's a lady on the uh, here Hi, um, my name is Bella Grant. I'm for a very short while, Lord Agnew was my boss, <laughs> very short while. Can I just quote from his resignation letter? And I put this in the context of being very nuanced in the word corruption. He said total fraud loss across government is estimated at 29 billion a year. Of course, not all can be stopped, but a combination of arrogance, indolence, and ignorance freezes the government machine. I sort of quote him in reference to the fact, where's the general public with that hat on? Very, very angry. I, I mean, you could hear it with the clapping to Rachel's announcement and COVID clawback. But I also, in the context of there is a nuance behind this as well, it's very deeply broken elements of this machine. It's not just the MPs. I can't believe I'm defending MPs. Apologies. But <laughs> the Lord Agni aspect. And I think it'd be interesting to get cross-party support on this and he could be someone to be considered. Thank you. Thank you. You at the front? Hello, Henry Darnell, also from The Guardian. Um, a question for uh, Mia, I suppose. Um, does the Labour Party not have an opportunity in the next 12 months to showcase its commitment to transparency by committing to publishing details of its meetings as a shadow, uh, you know, government-in-waiting 
with media executives, with uh, outside consultants and lobbyists in the way that they would have to do so when in government, but beyond, you know, as, as, as has been suggested, expanding the current system of transparency that could showcase what that system could look like by doing it for the next 12 months in opposition. Thank you. Uh, John Gurness from the Charter Institute of Public Relations. I think Susan was referring to us, amongst others, as uh, those that are representing the lobbying industry. Uh, and it might surprise some to hear that actually lobbyists themselves, uh, in our membership at least, are very keen uh, to come under further regulation and actually want to be uh, want to be more transparent about the work that they're doing. Uh, and I understand that the Ethics and Integrity Commission is looking at the conduct of those in Parliament rather than their relationship with people external to that. Um, but uh, to, to sort of build on, on Susan's very good point about the lobbying register and the lack of transparency that's in, within the Lobbying Act at the moment, uh, we've been lobbying uh, ourselves for uh, a Lobbying for Good Lobbying campaign to try and uh, change the Lobbying Act and to increase the transparency uh, amongst it. And I just wondered what the appetite uh, was for including that into this commission, including the, uh, the, the relationship with external lobbyists in that. Thank you very much. Okay, so three questions there. Is the system more broadly broken? It's not just about politicians and MPs. Um, is there a chance for Labour to uh, practice what they would preach that they should would do uh, would they, should they win the election uh, by declaring their meetings uh, that they are holding now um, and is there a case uh, for what does the panel say about increasing the transparency of lobbying more generally? I think we'll go back the other way to give uh, Aubrey a chance to kick off. Um, I actually thought I was going to let the Labour MP start while I've thought. So. <laughs> okay, in which case, uh, yeah, do you want to start? <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, so, um, uh, well, yes, that's a fair few things, isn't it? Can I just uh, mention, first of all, as all politicians do, um, and they don't answer the question, reform in the House of Lords, just remember that's also absolutely up there as one of our very firm commitments uh, for our first term in government. So uh, that is definitely on the cards. There's the dilemma then, of course, of what you do immediately before that in terms of prime ministers appointing people who are going to be uh, voting for the end of the House of Lords. Right. Uh, but anyway, uh, that, that, that's something Thanks, that's to get. Um, yeah, just to mention on, on the money side, we've also committed to having an office for value for money. So this is something which goes beyond just the Ethics and Integrity Commission. This is something which as you point out, is systemic and is a massive problem. So the Office for Value for Money to try and tackle uh, exactly those problems of massive wastage that you know, we've seen in all sorts of, of contracts. Um, in terms of the idea about us publishing a list, well, I'll certainly take that back as, a, as an interesting thought, um, something for us to, to, to be doing, um, as long as you don't think it would look presumptuous of us. <laughs> Um, but uh, it's not a, not a bad idea. Um, in terms of the lobbying, um, the convention has been this idea that Prime Minister publishes a ministerial code, but as we are bringing that, uh, you know, the position of the, the, the advisor that the, the Prime Minister appoints and this announcement to make of a 
ministerial code. If we're bringing that into the Ethics and Integrity Commission, then obviously the aspects of, of lobbying that are all, you know, usually mentioned in that is obviously something that we would want to have a, a remit for. So the question then is looking at the external side as well, isn't it? So that's obviously something for, you, for us to, to look at. Yeah, I think it's about the external lobbyists who aren't currently covered by mm. the... Mm. Yeah, can't remember the name of the uh, uh, lobbying commission, but so, Susan will tell me. Consultant register. Well, register of consultant lobbyists. That's yes. Right. yes. <laughs> um, Susan. Cool. I think I'm going to go down the other end. Oh, I can go down the other end. Debbie's left. <laughs> <laughs> um, Duncan, you look like you want to answer a question. We've had a few questions about lobbying. So I, I, I plead guilty. I was part of how the Lobbying Act got introduced. And it was gutted by you know, negotiations inside that government, uh, which uh, refused to include in-house lobbyists. So it was only consultant lobbyists that appeared on the register. And our, our research and, and that of academics as well has found that it's a tiny percentage of lobbying interactions that actually are performed by consultant lobbyists. I mean, some of it might be advised by consultant lobbyists, but it's actually performed by consultant lobbyists. And therefore, the lobbying register isn't really telling the British public what's going on. And I think they have a right to know. Mm -hmm. So we do need a comprehensive uh, register of lobbying. But you know, transparency is not an end in itself. Transparency just means to have some accountability. And I think what Sue said earlier was really important about equal access. And there have been others at this conference who've been talking about democratic equality. You know, we need to understand why some voices are not getting heard in our politics. And I think when ministers, agree, and, ministers and their officials agree to be lobbied, I think there's a reasonable presumption that they should make that those um, that in, in agreeing to that meeting, that there is some articulation of why this meeting happening is in the public interest. Any half-decent lobbyist would be able to form a rationale around that. But I think it'd be a really good discipline for everyone involved to ask themselves that question with a view to it being published. Uh, and that would, that would then mean that we were more likely to have good lobbying, because you know, otherwise the only lobbying that happens is if the Prime Minister is having lunch with the Director General of the IEA, because she does that every week anyway. Right? We want more voices to be heard by decision makers. But I think it'd be really good if everyone was tasked with really asserting why having this conversation is about a collective pursuit of the public interest. Okay, so I guess your, your angle on this is uh, the interest of a journalist in the transparency of lobbying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's something where, particularly when you look at the, the sort of very thin and sketchy details of meetings that ministers hold with people, um, it's often sort of just feels like they're sort of trying to tick a box or, you know, it's, it's kind of used as a smokescreen. So I think trying to add some value to the to the reasons behind that meeting i've i mean i'm currently sort of trying to investigate a series of these sorts of things um and i think i know the answers but you know the the way to look for proof is not actually in the transparency records Can I, yes. no, no i think that uh, just to back that up i mean we recently found a or a major kind of interaction between the former chancellor and the minister responsible for regulating crypto. Yeah. And uh, it was not declared. He managed to get meetings with his crypto firm. None of it was declared in his transparency releases. And it was only through doing a freedom of information request that we found out about it. Um, and 
that minister also has shares in the crypto firm. But anyway, it's <laughs> there are really serious issues with uh, not enough detail being said. Special advisors, crucial gap. It needs to be both in the registrar of lobbyists, but also in the uh, government um, declares. And there's this sense that kind of, you know, WhatsApp uh, government uh, is just is out of control. And it's like there needs to be some guidelines about what needs to be reported and it needs to be really quite extensive and generous because more and more governments are obviously taking place through their informal loops. Thanks. Tim. Thank you. So just on a couple of things. So on that point about the kind of the detail of advice uh, of information that comes out in transparency returns and the quality, I think there's a real premium on making sure that the staff are there to do that job properly. So I'm a big believer sort of nine times out of ten it is cock up not conspiracy. Um, so the the finance minister not declaring crypto things, I'm not sure which side of the line that falls, but the, generally it is a junior member of the minister's office who is put upon, who is busy, and one thing they have to do every three months is send this piece of paper off to the cabinet office, and they forget about it, or it just keeps slipping to the bottom of the to-do list, and then someone senior looks at it for 30 seconds, and, you know, nobody is... Tr- I don't think, trying to hide this information. The problem is that the system doesn't value that information enough to put proper attention on it. And so I think this is a question for a Labour government. Are they going to say, we are going to be on time with these returns, we are going to ensure they have proper information, we are going to make sure that our permanent secretaries task civil servants with doing this information properly, because that is what will deliver the change in terms of providing that information. And I just want to come back on the question about Lord Agnew's resignation and um, cross-party working on dealing with corruption, which I think is a really interesting point. And obviously with Rachel Reeves' um, statement earlier today, it is going to be a big theme of a future Labour government if you do enter uh, government. One of the things I think has to be learned from the pandemic experience and the corruption during COVID is about how government responds to crises. You know, there is... At the beginning of the pandemic, furlough was set up incredibly quickly. The government was shoveling money out of the door to support the economy, to support workers whose jobs had been shut down. And that was the right thing to do. In that situation, it is inevitable that there will be some fraud, there will be some corruption, and there is nothing you can do about that on day one, week one. The question is, how do you learn from that? How do you ensure it's not still happening on month six, year two? And that was the failing, I think, of the government during the pandemic. And so any future government, facing a similar situation has to make sure, okay, we need to be light-footed and respond quickly, but we also need to make sure we're mopping things up as we go along and improving, rather than continuing to make the same mistakes down the line. Thanks, Tim. I know there are plenty more questions in the room, but we've only got uh, a few more minutes, and so I'm just going to ask each of the panellists to wrap up and um, answer my final question, which is, what is the most single most important thing an ethics and integrity commission uh, could do to restore ethics and integrity in government? Um, so, I'm afraid, Susan, we'll start with you. Um, be genuinely, truly independent, and impose genuinely and truly independent sanctions. Thank you, both succinct. Yeah. I'm, I'm afraid you've stolen my words because <laughs> independence was, was certainly something, as I said in my opening remarks, that I see as absolutely crucially important. But to be seen to be independent as well, that's that's what really matters, I think, to the to the public. So independent and to be seen to be independent and to be proactive. Thanks. Tim. So I think just to come back to the point I made earlier is restore this to a point of principle about what the Prime Minister is in charge of. And I think to give some credit to Rishi Sunak, he has done this. He hasn't gone as far as he could have with the recommendations that were made earlier in the year or a couple of years ago, but he appointed an independent advisor. He set out a clear ministerial code. He has moved, uh, he, he did 
set up an investigation into the Dominic Raab allegations, even though it wasn't by the ministerial advisor. But like he has made changes and he has shown that he wants this issue to be taken seriously, which is a big improvement on how things were under Boris Johnson. So the question for the next prime minister will be, how do you take that further? How do you ensure that you are the one who makes this happen? Thanks, Jim. Duncan? God, we've got to raise the bar a bit higher than that. <laughs> um, I, I agree with Mia. My word was going to be proactive. Uh, we need this commission to be going out, having conversations with people on a cross-party basis, as Bella says, about the change that we want to see, and not just waiting for someone to file a complaint about a particular politician's activities to, to really um, drive this renewal in the way our democratic politics works. Thanks, Duncan. Hopefully you get the final word. Yeah, so it's not the most important, but I'll try and sort of give some diversity um, and throw one more suggestion into the mix. Obviously, we are at party conference. We've just been talking about transparency requirements. I think I'm right in saying that government ministers at conservative conference, when there's you know no officials present, they're not minuted. Those sort of meetings they have with whoever they might be having, that might be another area for Labour to investigate. Increasing transparency about those sorts of discussions. Brilliant. Well... That's what we've got time for now. I hope some of our panellists might be able to stick around so those who weren't able to ask their questions will be able to come on back and home before they make it out the door. Um, thank you so much to everyone who's joined us here today. Thanks again to our partners for this event, Transparency International, uh, Spotlight on Corruption, and the UK Anti-Corruption Coalition. Um, and uh, there'll be a recording of this uh, event on our website, uh, later in the week um, and don't forget to join us for all our other excellent IFG events uh, which will be happening mostly in this room although not exclusively in this room. Uh, we have one coming up on the future of government outsourcing and one later today on the constitutional consequences of electoral reform which may interest some of you. So uh, please do come along and join us again later today and can I just ask you to join me in thanking our panel.